You're listening to 66.6 FM Radio TOVH The Flush Oh yeah, you're listening to another thrilling episode of The Toilet of Hell Radio Show It's me, Joe Thrash and Kill Joined again by the good and golden boy You know him, you love him He's 365 days of horror, as we like to call him, Jordan. Jordan, how are you? I am hellbent, hellbent for leather. How are you, Joe? Hellbent for leather-bound books, if you will. Uh, I, uh, I've i been uh, reading. That's right. Y'all thought I couldn't fucking read? Fucking showing y'all up again. Uh, I, uh, I read a book that wasn't about science or gambling for the first time in like 18 months, so... My head is just swollen. There's too much information contained within now. It could be a danger. You're the Bobby Hill meme giant brain. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Something that I had been threatening to do since uh, the book was announced in like 2019 uh, was pick up Rob Halford's Confess, the autobiography. Now, there were a couple of stipulations on this. Uh, For the most part, I fucking refuse to pay full price for any celebrity memoir, so I am always looking for this at a half-price books, and fortunately I found it uh, at actually an independent uh, used bookstore in Denton, Texas, uh, that uh, is delightful. If you have the opportunity to go to downtown Denton, highly recommend this incredible uh, used bookstore. Very good stuff. Uh, I found it there for six bucks. I felt like that was a good investment uh, to wrangle uh, one hour and 15 minutes worth of content out of six dollars. Does that seem fair to you? Sure, I guess. Is there anything else in Denton? Do you want to paint a picture for people who have never been to Denton, Texas? Uh, Denton is, uh, it's, you know, on the, it's just outside of the DFW, but is connected to the DFW because it's also a large town, a large suburb, I guess. There's a University of North Texas there, which is kind of an artsy school. So uh, Denton itself is populated by a bunch of uh, hip, uh, young, progressive people. Uh, The actual downtown square that's, you know, surrounding the courthouse that's been there since like 1880 or whatever, uh, has like an arcade and like a candy store. It's ideal for like children and families and stuff. It's, It's a nice place. Very good. So what you're saying is it's going to be the new Austin and it's going to be ruined in about 10 years? I think that it has been um, the little Austin for a good 30 years now. At least that's how I've always kind of seen it. Um, I, when I was a younger man uh, and, and playing in bands and stuff, I always thought that would be a better place to play than Austin itself because Austin is filled with assholes. <laughs> so the tech bros and the monsters haven't found out about Denton yet. Not yet. Um, maybe this will be the thing that puts it on the map. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's a fun place, though. Uh, highly recommended uh, to visit, I guess, if you know somebody there. Otherwise, I have no idea why you would ever go to Denton in the first place. Maybe just well, see they, have the... a can- they have a candy store in an arcade. That's enough for me to go to somewhere. That's true. And a very good uh, used bookstore. Big selection of uh, records as well. Not, not too shabby. Uh, anyway, I uh, bought that book there. Uh, I read it in the span of about, I don't know, 24 hours because, uh, much to our dismay, nothing happened in the news this week whatsoever. It's probably a good thing, like in the long run, that a week actually passed without someone saying something incredibly stupid or doing something incredibly stupid or offensive. So everyone gets a break for a week. 
I guess so. We truly are in the heat of the summer doldrums, though, because God, not a fucking thing, man. Just uh, tours are announced, but I feel like it's all the same bands playing the same venues in the same cities. Like, I don't even know why I bother looking anymore whenever a news story pops up or a poster comes across my social media. It's like, yep, I know it's not coming to me. Or if it does, it's going to be in Boston or Brooklyn. I'm not going to either one of those places. So, <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Uh, I. Uh, are you excited about this uh, traveling festival featuring Machine Head as a headliner? No. <laughs> no, very much not No. Oh, look, hate breeds on it. Oh, boy, let's get excited. Uh, we can, you and I have done so, so very many episodes of this show that, you know, we just can't, we can't keep doing this to ourselves. We got to get out, get out of our, uh, our comfort zone from time to time. So here we are with Confess by Rob Halford. Now, folks that have been listening to our show for a very long time will remember that a couple of years ago, maybe last year, actually, we read... Uh, K.K. Downing's uh, autobiography, uh, which was, I think I had mentioned at the time, not terribly good. Uh, do you remember that episode? Was this the book where he was talking about like golfing for chapters? Yes, the book was uh, written with John Englinton, Eng- who is a Scottish uh, celebrity memoir uh, writer. Uh, who followed me on Twitter for a while, who is an insane right-wing piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, he followed the Total Health Twitter for a while, and like I just reciprocated, like, oh, yes, thank you, I will follow you too, and that lasted about a week. I read a couple of his books for the show. I think his writing is piss poor, and he himself is actually a horrific person, so uh, I feel comfortable saying that on the air now. This was not written uh, with a uh, with any attached writer, at least not called out. Uh, if, uh, somebody did the work, they were, uh, given a ghostwriter's wig for this. Uh, I think that we can all agree that Rob Halford is probably much more, um, capable of expressing himself than K.K. Downing. And, uh, I, I guess it's realistic that he could have written this one himself. That- yeah, it's possible. But when, whenever you say like someone's a ghostwriter, all I think about is the old PBS show ghostwriter. Hell yeah. The old computer just, talking to the kids. <laughs> there's a, like a ball of light following Rob Halford around, writing down his thoughts and ideas. Uh, I say that, you know, it's entirely possible that Rob Halford wrote this mo- this one on his own, but I will also add that this is rife with many of the cliches that are present in every single heavy metal autobiography that we've ever done for the show. So I still feel like there is some kind of network of of ghostwriter guys just making sure that we have to have these same shitty little turns of phrase in every one of these. Um, there's there's probably just a handful of publishers that want to put out rocker memoirs and autobiographies. And among them, there's only a handful of ghostwriters who are willing to or want to write about them. And among them, they probably just have their standard questions. How did you start? What was your home life like? What were your parents like? Tell us about your first tour. Tell us funny stories. And you have a book. Uh, and I say, I'm immediately going to sound like an asshole here because I now see who the co-writer is on this. <laughs> it's Ian Gittins. Have, are you familiar with him? I don't believe so. Let's just take a quick look at who Ian Gittins is. He is uh, Ian Gittins, his website here, says journalist, editor, author, ghostwriter. <laughs> Uh, so he's, uh, he's done a number of books, uh, let's see, Depeche Mode, The Cure, 
he wrote the Heroin Diaries, I think, which is probably his most successful work. It's uh, Nikki Six, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. did uh, an Eminem autobiography, uh, Bjork, Bork autobiography, U2, and then some interesting shit like uh, The Secrets of the Lost Symbol, Unlocking the Masonic Go Code. <laughs> mm. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I have nothing against Ian at this moment uh, because I have not really delved into his background. Certainly, like I have against that other guy, but we'll just go from there. Well, he's Ian getting paid right now, possibly hey. to possibly to fund some concerning <laughs> books and ideas and I, newsletters. Just googling Ian Gettin's JQ right now. <laughs> uh, how do we feel about this, Ian? Um, anyway, uh, the standard, uh, celebrity autobiography code follows here and that the book opens, uh, with a quick chapter, uh, a sketch detailing some dire moment in the, uh, subject's life and then concluding it with that sentence with like, but it was only the start of what would be my heavy metal journey. I would learn so much and get to do this and this and this in this crazy life of mine. Uh, every one of these things is like fucking clockwork. I love, love Rob Halford, but he is desperately guilty of this crime as well. I'm about to go on stage in front of 10,000 screaming fans and then something happens. Yeah, it, it's it's that. And then we immediately go to maybe two to the three, two or three of the most boring sections you've ever read in your life about the author's childhood. Um, I typically hate these things. Uh, the most painful part in any of these books, except for maybe where they turn to Jesus, that's always insufferable. Uh, there's very little Jesus in this book, and I will say that Rob Halford actually has some pretty interesting bits about his childhood. Uh, one bit I wanted to highlight for you uh, Jordan, in that uh, he describes growing up in the black country uh, of England in the 1950s, uh, you know, basically with a working class family uh, that, you know, got along pretty well. Uh, his wife, uh, his, his mom was very, um, you know, quiet uh, homemaker, except for one night when they went out to see the pro wrestling show that was touring around and his mom lost his mind, her mind, uh, yelling for the ref, like, look, can't you see this man's cheating? <laughs> Eventually getting up out of her seat and hitting a wrestler with her purse because he was cheating so clearly in front of the entire arena. Hey, that, uh, up until probably the mid to late 80s, that was a real thing that happened. People still thought wrestling was real and would occasionally, like, take a knife to the wrestling show and cut a wrestler because they were so <laughs> mad at him. Um, so the entire family was horrified though, and they never went out to the wrestling again, as they said, but I, I did enjoy that little sketch as, you know, just a fun look at what wrestling was like in those days. And especially seeing like a calm housewife being turned into like a, an absolute gibbering freak because <laughs> this man in the rain arena is cheating. Raph, look, look with your eyes. <laughs> she had to save big daddy. She had to be done. <laughs> Um, let's see, uh, Rob describes, uh, being eight years old in music class and being asked to sing a solo performance in which, uh, everybody was pretty quickly like, oh fuck, this kid is very, very good. Uh, and realizing from that moment on that he was 
going to be very good at singing. Um, let's see. Uh, he talks about, uh, you know, being a normal kid with all the other working class kids, uh, you know, uh, making fun of other kids, playing sports, all of that. He says, um, it all began when I got taught how to wank. My instructor was a kid a year or two older than me who lived up the road in Beachdale. I was hanging out on the estate one weekend when a couple of mates from school, uh, when this lad came up to us. Do you want to learn how to do something cool? He asked us. Yeah, okay. All right, follow me. We went to his house. He took us to a downstairs room, closed the door, and got his cock out. This is how you do it. You hold it like this, and you do it faster, and it makes you feel great. I didn't know what to make of this, but my two mates had dropped their pants and were copying him, so I thought I'd better join in. I was self-conscious at first. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? But then I got into it, and you know what? He was right. If you did it faster, it did make you feel great. <laughs> this lad was probably a budding pervert, but he didn't touch us or say, let me hold yours. He had just taken upon himself to teach us the ancient, not all that noble art of masturbation, and he opened up a whole new world for me. <laughs> a whole new world. Um, from this moment, he, uh, describes, like, he and his friends getting into it, like, basically jerking each other off, like, whenever, wherever they could. And it was at this moment he realized, oh, I'm gay as hell. (laughs) Um, I don't, his, he realized that his friends did not feel the same way, and he kind of needed to keep it close to the chest, but he was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what I am. I see. Interesting. The book itself, uh, through 350 pages, tends to kind of struggle with his identity as a gay man and struggle for intimacy, uh, of himself finding, uh, finding himself alone kind of as maybe the only gay man around uh, for decades, uh, with people that maybe know about his sexuality but otherwise like can't reciprocate in any way. It really is kind of... Uh, a lonely exercise for the first four decades of his, of his life or so. Um, he describes um, starting to um, graduate and deciding that what he wanted to do was work in the theater. And uh, in the process of traveling to a local theater, he stops by a public restroom where he finds uh, a gay porno magazine and a dildo. <laughs> And he cleans up the dildo and takes them both home, and his dad finds them both. Uh, which, and this part was actually very interesting to me, and like, his dad was, of course, not pleased because he was uh, like a factory worker in uh, you know the 50s in England. Uh, but he was also like, well, I guess it's okay. I guess you're not hurting anybody, which seems like a pretty um, progressive mind for that time. What do you think? It's probably more stiff upper lip. That makes sense, yeah. Then being progressive or being thoughtful, it's more like we do not talk about this. I, I That's probably more like it. Um, he, His dad, though, like he wants to encourage his pursuits in the theater. So he has an old friend that he has reach out to, uh, to Rob, you know, Rob being maybe seven, 16, 17 at this time. Uh, he's like, hey, you know, this guy works at a bigger theater uh, in Birmingham. Uh, maybe you should uh, meet him at this bar, talk to him, and see if like this is something that like uh, he, you can work as an assistant as his theater. And basically, what happens is that this his dad's 
friend that works in the theater gets Rob drunk and like sexually assaults him. And he never mentions this to his dad ever. He says, I wouldn't have written this in the book if my dad was still alive, even. I think it would have crushed him. Uh, This is the first of many experiences that Rob has with an older gay man preying upon him and kind of further, like, giving him further wicked bad vibes about his own sexuality. It seems like a really difficult upbringing especially and probably one that was fairly common in this time i would say yeah probably i guess if people were looking towards this book for good happy rock and roll times this may not be it probably not i mean rob is uh for the most part a pretty positive guy at Mm -hmm. this late stage in life and he does you know come come upon better things here but the first 250 pages or so are fairly rough on the poor guy. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could look at it from the perspective of he is okay now. Yes, that is true. To, to help get you through that, because that's a rough way to start your book. Um, eventually, uh, Rob starts listening to the hip sounds of the late 60s. The Beatles, uh, Jimi Hendrix, and eventually things like Led Zeppelin. And he's like, oh, fuck the theater. This is what I want to do. <laughs> it was its own form of theater. It was. Well, he, um, you know, he's, he's working as an assistant at the theater. He's getting drunk as hell every night after all of these performances, uh, learning that, like, this is that he likes to get fucked up, essentially. And that's a thing that is going to continue on until he is roughly 40 years old in this book. Uh, so we're going from the ages of 16 to 40. He is probably wasted almost every single day here, which seems exhausting, Jordan. <laughs> it does, but uh, I guess looking at it from what the stories we've already talked about is self-medication, self-dealing sure. with all of this sort of stuff and, you know, growing up in the conservative working class 50s and 60s of England, I'm sure that made it that much worse. So I would like to share a little bit, and I, I uh, got to confess that I did not highlight this section in the book, so I'm going to have to recall it from memory. But uh, Rob describes the story of being, I think, five years old in his hometown when the Queen of England came to visit, and he and his family went in a big crowd to see her speak, and he felt that the Queen wove, like was waving to him directly, and it started him on... A lifetime of royalists, <laughs> royalism, if you will. <laughs> well, that's that's sweet in its own way of being a little kid and having that connection with someone that's larger than life and a representation of, you know, I guess everything that happens around your life funnels up to this person and they're waving at you. I guess that's true. I, I think, uh, in my mind, it's one of the few very distasteful things in this book in that he uh, repeatedly like talks about how much he admires the Queen. <laughs> well, national identity. It's, it's still going on today that we know of. So I understand it, and especially post-World War II. You know, English, UK nationalism is pretty high and pretty reverent and deferential to the royalty that got them through that. So, I suppose that's go. true. Um, <clears throat> we um, we talked a bit about, uh, in K.K. Downing's book, the 
travel like the series of bands that happened before Judas Priest came about. We don't really need to get in that here. We can just say that Rob Halford himself had uh, tired of the theater. Uh, he went to work at a men's boutique in London and uh, decided that you know he wanted to focus full time on on being a cool rock and roll guy. He does describe here while working as the manager at this men's boutique that he would, uh, you know, find things that he liked, uh, wear them all weekend when the shop was closed and then bring them back stinking of booze, cigarettes and old spice and like try to put them back on the rack for sale. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but Judas Priest gets together. They have, the greatest manager in the world for a young bar band. Uh, And I know that KK describes some of this as well, but I fucking love the way that Rob describes this man as just a hustler, like a guy who is so full of shit and is willing to spread it everywhere on your behalf. Like if you are a nothing band, this is exactly the kind of guy that you need in your corner. He would give people uh, his business office phone number, which was the number for a public telephone, which he sat sat at like behind the wheel of his car all day waiting to answer it. Eventually, he upgraded to stealing the keys to an office building that had a phone on the elevator, and he would hang out in the elevator all day making free phone calls across the world, like telling people, I've got internationally renowned recording artist Judas Priest available to play at your venue, and like just lying by the seat of his pants, getting them gigs everywhere in Europe. Uh, you know, if they were decent paying gigs, and they were a nothing band. It seemed... You need a guy like that. You have to have somebody who's willing to just lie wholeheartedly for you. It sounds like the origin story of Sleazy P. Martini. It kind of does, doesn't it? I, just I, like without the crack. I feel like that's that's the one thing that younger bands are missing, is you need a guy who is not in your band because playing music gets in the way of hustling. <laughs> you do need a hustler that is just starving for money and attention and will probably eventually screw you over but in the process level you up in a way that you'll never get on your own just doing facebook events and posting through it on twitter did you ever see the movie that thing you do yes i love the character of the guy who runs a record label out of his camper (laughs) Like the guy, this job is just a hustle from small town to small town, looking to see if he can make some, make two cents off a band, and then once he finds something, hand it off to a bigger label, which is essentially what happened here. He took these guys from cradle to like handing them off to a major label and taking a big chunk of change for all of his efforts. It's a pretty good system, in my opinion. I don't know that it's still economically viable, but it certainly does make for a very romantic ideal of a rock and roll band. There are some smaller labels out there that have been able to sustain themselves after one of their bands catches fire and they pass them off to a major label or they're lucky enough to like have a contract where, oh, this band's signed with me for three more albums, but if you want them, you can buy them out for yep. this price. And you know, by doing that, they're able to keep doing what they do without any sort of real financial issues. And sometimes uh, they'll land you your biggest selling album forever on your label, in the case of Metal Blade and the Goo Goo Dolls. <laughs> Nothing is ever going to unseat that one. Um, I want to highlight this little story here just because I really enjoyed it. 
we were driving through Amsterdam and I was dying for a crap. And one thing about the Netherlands, great country that it is, is that there are never any public toilets to be found. I was touching cloth and as <laughs> it's so good, right? You're really painting a picture, Rob. You're a real words. <laughs> it's good with words. And as we say in Walsall, when you've gura goo, you've gura goo. I took emergency measures. As our driver drove along, I crawled into the back of the van where I saw a manila envelope. I crouched over it and silently pooped into the top. <laughs> Luckily, it was a whistler where you don't even need toilet paper. It shot out like an Olympic sprinter from the starting line. Well, great, except now I was in the delicate situation of holding a manila envelope full of my own shit. <laughs> I crawled back to the front of the van, wound down the window, and discreetly lobbed the package onto one of into one of Amsterdam's famous canals. Maybe the rest of the band wouldn't notice what I'd done. Fat chance. They were on me as my rotten stink suddenly filled the van. Ugh. Rob, you dirty bastard, they moaned as my poo floated happily up the dam. <laughs> what do you think? I was waiting for the punchline, like, the envelope was filled with a record contract or had their pay from last night's show. <laughs> oh my god, that would be even better. So, after releasing uh, Stained Class... Uh, the band got to be bigger, the tracks got more airplay, and the makeup of our crowds began to change. The rabid, head-banging blokes that were our core followers were as loyal as ever, but we also started to get more women followers, and our first groupies. Well, I didn't. None of our fans knew that I was gay at this point, of course. If any misguided girls made a play for me, I would politely brush them off. But if I wanted some action on the road, and I really, really did, how the hell was I supposed to go about it? For straight blokes, the ritual was easy. They could invite a girl to come backstage. Would you like a drink? Would you like to come to our hotel? Would you like to see my room? I couldn't do any of that. If I fancied a guy in the crowd, how did I go about it? What were the chances of him being gay, or if he was, of admitting it? What if I got it wrong, made a misjudged pass, and got smacked in the mouth? And of course, the overriding fear that was to limit my existence for decades. What if it got out that I was gay? Fans didn't want anything to do with a band fronted by a queer, and it killed Judas Priest stone cold dead. Priest was the most important thing in my life, and even if I was willing to sacrifice it for my sexuality, which I wasn't, I simply couldn't do it to Ken, Glenn, or Ian. It wouldn't be fair to them. It was my problem, not theirs. The safest thing, the only thing to do, was to remain firmly in the closet, and that meant that our fans were off limits. Um, it was at this point in their career that they decided that they were going to uh, change their image a little bit. Uh, he was looking back on uh, some of the footage uh, and pictures of the band where they were all kind of wearing a mishmash of weird things, like uh, K.K. Downing kept wearing a white fedora that, <laughs> that Rob Halford hates. <laughs> that sounds on brand. Uh, he hated the drummer for wearing a stupid cowboy shirt. Like Overall, everything was kind of a mess. Uh, so from there, they worked with a designer uh, who took them down to London and got them all fitted with leather gear that became their trademark for the next you know, 50 years. Um, and it, I think that he, he addresses here that you know, it's long been rumored that uh, Halford himself was the, um, you know, the guiding force behind this because it reflected his interest in 
uh, BDSM and, and things like that. And he's clarifies like, no, I actually, I've never been into that kind of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which I feel like, uh, that's, that's something I've heard my entire life. How about you? Yeah, I think so. Working at the places and taking all of their clothes and the whips and the chains and such, and just integrating that into Judas Priest. Yeah. So the band gets to play in America for the first time and he goes to New York and he's like, wow, this is incredible. There's like uh, uh, gay people here and stuff. (laughs) And it's really kind of like a a great experience for him to be able to be like out on the town. Uh, He he describes in that era going to Times Square, which at the time was uh, kind of a dump, but he liked it a lot because there were all these uh, uh, gay porn shops and theaters and things like that. And that's what it was up until, like, Rudy Giuliani became mayor in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, Times Square was a seed of, or a den of iniquity and porn shops and anything you want, you could pretty much get there. And in the 90s, Rudy Giuliani, just like the homeless, shipped everything out and put in the Disney store. Uh, yeah, thank God you can go to the M&M store now and Guy Fieri's four restaurants there. Uh, I have actually been to the M&M store. Yeah. <laughs> and when I was there, I was like, oh, yeah, it's just M&M's. All right, I'm done. I it, I mean, I guess I understand like economically why he did it and all that, but it is terribly disappointing that we just have like 15 places in the U.S. that are exactly the goddamn same, you know? Like, instead of what was once a very unique uh, layout and geography and feel. Blame the internet for bringing us all together and telling us what we want. And then being able to provide it in a square 16,000 feet box and where you can buy everything that you need. Yeah, I suppose that is true. Uh, Rob also describes uh, the first time of going to San Francisco, which he had been you know, uh, very excited to do since the beginning. The thing he most wanted to do was get a copy of The Advocate, which was a LBGT newspaper that was sold like basically everywhere in the city. He was, you know, familiar with it, had heard of it, but he had never been able to read it himself. So that was the thing he was most looking forward to uh, when getting there. Um, You know, and he looks in the back of it and there's like classifieds of like, you know, for dating ads and like, events and talks and things like that. And he's like, this is fucking incredible. He says here, another piece of gay literature I picked up in San Francisco was Bob Dameron's address book. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, no, I don't think so. So he says this was a slim, discreet volume, just the right size to slip into your jeans back pocket. And it listed gay bars, bathhouses, and cruising areas in hundreds and cities and towns across America. So as our tour bus pulled through the night, I would lay in my bunk, light on curtain clothes, memorizing the info. It told me the fire pit was the best gay bar in Birmingham, Alabama. If I were in Covington, Kentucky, I could go to Juchi Bo's. On the pole in Hollywood, I should try Annex West on Melrose. He says, I never went to one of them. The most I ever dared to do was stroll around any gay areas that happened to be near the band's hotel, or quickly prost my nose against a gay club's windows like a Dickensian ragamuffin ogling out-of-reach t- out cakes. <laughs> Please, sir, may I have some more? <laughs> may I have some cock? <laughs> may I have some cock, sir? <laughs> um, honestly, like, until the age of him being about 33, it's just him lusting after Dick and getting none. It is terribly sad. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I feel, feel, really feel for the guy as like the only sexual encounters he seems to have are just awful. Like similar to like the one with that older man where they get him drunk, they give him some kind of pill or something. And like, he doesn't even remember any of it. It seems super, super depressing, man. Uh, and it's, it's also a shame because like the way that he writes about this, it is so straightforward. Like I am a grown man. I would like to have like a consensual sexual encounter. Why is this so hard for me? Um, as you know, all of this is going on, like the band is really taking off, uh, all of the, uh, all of the work that they've been putting in, it's, it's really coming to fruition. They're getting more radio play. They're getting bigger and better tours. Uh, they're starting to be able to do headlining tours themselves. And in the meantime, uh, they're meeting all kinds of, uh, famous people. He describes getting into an argument with, uh, Marie Osmond. <laughs> <laughs> He describes uh, getting to do support with, uh, the, the quote here is, true American rock royalty, KISS. When we were offered those dates, we pondered hard. KISS was not a metal band, and we weren't musical soulmates, but Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley loved Priest and had personally requested us, which was flattering, and the opportunity to reach hundreds of thousands of new fans was impossible to refuse. The KISS army are notoriously hard to please, but we went down well with them. We were only doing 30 minutes per night, so we just went for it with a full-on metal assault. The crowds accepted us because we were fierce and committed, and we had a strong image. Um, Gene and Paul may have been into our music, but we didn't see a lot of them off stage. However, it thrilled me that Gene was dating Cher, who was a very big deal for gay guys. I kept concocting feeble excuses to hang around near her just so I could say hi. <laughs> did you know that Gene Simmons dated Cher? I did not. Now I'm just imagining both of their giant hairs <laughs> meshing and melding as one. <laughs> um, so that's just a delightful thing uh, that I've learned here. Um, they record a couple of albums at the estate uh, where John Lennon and Yoko Ono had recorded Imagine as well as a bunch of other things. He says, on the first day there, Glenn Tipton comes up to me and says, you've got to come and see this. He showed me a fairly ordinary bedroom, but the kicker was the in-suite bathroom. It had two toilets a couple of feet apart, side by side, with nameplates behind each one. John... Yoko, I tried to imagine them sitting side by side, holding hands, having a poo. Truly, sometimes love knows no bounds. <laughs> like Megan Trainer and her husband. What? Yeah, that's a thing that she said she has in her house and like told, I don't know, Us Weekly or something. And everyone went, that's really weird. That is really weird. <laughs> Also, who is this insidious Satan behind this push for Megan Trainer? Nobody wants this. Nobody wants this horrible lady. I remember being assaulted by her awful song while playing mini golf one day, and it was like no one else was around, and they were just blasting that song, and I was just very unhappy. I'm like, I just, I just want to hit the ball, please. Uh, over the years, I've seen a number of different marketing pushes for Megan Trainer. Thankfully, I don't think any of them have really caught on, aside from that first song that she came out with. It's just quite, quit trying to make Megan Trainer happen. Nobody wants it. I think she's a TikTok person now and has gotten a boost from that. Uh, of course. Um, <clears throat> the uh, He's describing here the process of uh, writing a recording, Breaking the Law. You know that song, right? 
Yeah, I've heard it once or twice. It, it actually, when you told me you were going to be doing this book, it reminded me when I was in my high school new metal band, the first couple shows we played, we ended up playing with another band like our age. And I think they like went to my school, but I didn't know them at all, which was always a weird thing. Like they might have been a year younger or something like that, but they would always play Breaking the Law. And like it was torture, but like the third show. I mean, <clears throat> I love that song. That's such a... Oh, it's a, not the song's fault. Yeah. It's just like, I don't want to sit through and watch that being played poorly uh, at what is essentially a new metal show. Yes, that makes sense. Um, so he says, one very punky sounding song that we wrote on the spot early on was Breaking the Law. Judas Priest have never been a political band. It's not our bag, but this song was without question a slice of acute social commentary. As an apolitical soul, I had been fairly indifferent when Margaret Thatcher came to power the previous year, beyond vague awareness that it was a big deal to have a woman prime minister. Yet a few months into her government, it was obvious a lot of bad stuff was going on. The heavy industry and the car makers in the Midlands and around the country were struggling, and there was already talk of factory closures. Unemployment was shooting up. Worst of all, millions of young people had no hope and felt they were being ignored. Writing the lyrics for Breaking the Law, I tried to put myself in the mind of a jobless young bloke at his wit's end. I wasn't trying to be any kind of spokesman, I never have, but I saw a lot of disenfranchisement and anger and anarchy around me and wanted to document it and reflect it. Uh, He also describes uh, the process of writing the song Grinder and notes why the gay dating app has never asked me to use this song in their ads is simply beyond me. It's a good point. It's right there. Um, you have an icon. You have the same name. You could easily do something fun and cheeky with it because that's what he's all about these days. Yeah, it's a drop ball from Grinder. Well, from this point on, Rob describes at least one song per every album was explicitly about gay sex. <laughs> and it's it's so funny. Like He was like, every time I wrote one of these songs, I was like... Surely people are going to find out. They're going to connect the dots and realize, oh, my God, I'm listening to gay music. And he's like, and nobody ever did. <laughs> Just someone scanning the lyrics to Nostradamus now. <laughs> One of the things I've noticed, like, not just with Judas Priest, these books, and, you know, when you think about also, like, Black Sabbath, these early heavy metal bands are all coming from, like, poor working class areas. Yes. And... Uh, around the same time, a few years later, you have like the U.S. punk scene coming up where a lot of these well-known bands are also coming from the poor working class. And I feel like that was kind of a constant theme in rock and roll until, I don't know, maybe the late 90s or even early 2000s when like Orange County rich kid metalcore bands became a thing. Like That was really the beginning of the end, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> in in ways like I know there's obviously now it's I think shifted a little bit but I think they kind of bought in and bought out some of these bands who were just riding in a van now they have mom and dad's money and they're able to buy the nicer equipment there's more labels out there that they can buy their ways on and in many cases actually pay to get on Ozfest and Warp Tour and some of these bigger festivals and like in a lot of ways, that money replaced just the hardworking ethos of getting out there and doing your thing just because that's what you want to do. And now it's become a business, and now you have guys trying to sell NFTs with their new albums. 
Yeah, it really, uh, really kind of sucks overall. And the way that you mentioned, like, especially these these rich kids buying on to uh, tours, buying on to labels, buying on to have their song played. It's just, is this uh, the only way that, who's collecting the money here? Is this the only way that there's a dollar made in this industry now? Kind of feels that way. Um, so having uh, finished another album, this time Point of Entry, at uh, the estate where John Lennon uh, had prior had lived, uh, he heard the news that Lennon was shot dead. I went. I didn't know how to process my grief, so I went up on the roof of the studio on my own. And the strangest thing happened: a mini storm blew up on the horizon, vanished as soon as it started, and a rainbow appeared and went right over the studio. Now I'm not going to be so daft as to say it was a message to me from John Lennon. But the important thing was that it felt like one. And maybe the message was, next time, make a better album. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I appreciate how candid he is about so many of these things here. Um, So he says um, he was playing a show in Phoenix, Arizona. And this was the first time that he'd ever been there. He says, we arrived there at four in the morning and it was still a hundred degrees outside. And yet something had happened. He was like, I want to live here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We played the show and uh, a bunch of fans came. Uh, A guy wandered down and handed me a copy of Sin After Sin. And as I signed it, he leaned over the table and whispered, whispered in my ear, is the song Raw Deal on this record about gay guys? What? His words hit me like a hammer. Had this guy listened to my gay venting song, my Fire Island cruising song, and picked up on what all the fans and critics had missed years ago? Had I connected, for the first time ever, with an American gay guy? I looked up at the man. He was a few years younger than me, maybe early 20s, rugged, handsome, with a twinkle in his eye, and he was waiting for an answer. Um, why don't you stick around and I'll talk to you afterward, I suggested. He did. He hung around, and after Priest had done our sound check, he came back to the hotel for a chat in the bar. His name was David Johnson, and he'd moved to Phoenix from California, and he worked in a hardware shop. From this moment on, Rob buys a place in Phoenix, and David immediately moves in with him. They lived together for years, and the entire, basically like, uh, as a couple here, and at no point do they ever have sex because, as Rob finally accepts many, many years after the fact, David is a very straight man. <laughs> uh, I, and I, I read all of this, you know, like they hang out together all the time. They drink together all the time. I, I guess what David was getting out of this was that he got to hang out with the singer of a band that he liked and got to live rent free with him. I, I don't know, but it's it seems... V- Rob himself is unwilling to say it, but it feels kind of predatory to me. Yeah. I wonder if there's other things just not being said in the story. Um, but yeah, you, the guy gets to hang out with the band he likes and lives in free. I'm sure a lot of people would take advantage of that if that situation came up today. And it, it seems to be like, yes, that was kind of all it is. Now, he doesn't hold any like ill feelings towards him, but like he is basically living a completely chaste life with a completely platonic roommate, uh, which is, again, through all the rest of uh, Halford's 20s, it seems terribly frustrating. 
uh, because he tries to connect with this guy and he just never does because, of course, uh, David is a very straight man. Um, he uh, follows up uh, with a new uh, a new gay anthem on a new record, Eat Me Alive, about the joys of getting a blood, good blowjob. Uh, lyrics here, wrap tight around me like a second hot skin, cling to my body as the ecstasy begins. Uh, I had a few, I had hidden the meanings of a few of our songs from the others, but they had no doubts what this one was about. In fact, as I added, the fact that the guy was getting a, the blowjob had a gun to the giver's head, plus a very lurid metaphor, the rod of steel injects, the band members, as I explained it to them, were pissing themselves laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, there's, there's young metalheads listening to the song, and they're like, this is the straightest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty fun stuff. Um, he, uh, he makes friends with some, uh, some local uh, metal guys in uh, Phoenix. You know, they, they're regular uh, drinking buddies going out to all the metal bars around there. And one of the guys, a guy in a band called Surgical Steel that would later on go to be in Racer X, he has a heart-to-heart with Rob. He says, Rob, you know David dates chicks, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's just kind of unwilling to accept it. But that's that's how it is. He's, he's living in this loveless uh, relationship with a guy who gets a free house to live in. Um, he then describes the process of... Uh, you know, realizing this and deciding that he's going to go out in the world uh, and start cruising. Um, he says, We had an overnight drive to Austin after a show in San Antonio, and in the small hours, our tour bus stopped for fuel at an all-night truck stop. As usual, I headed straight for the loo, and as soon as I walked in, I saw a pair of feet under the door of a middle cubicle. I walked into one next to him and bolted the door. Tap, tap, tap. I hardly even sat down when his eager foot started twitching I tap-tap-tapped my signal back. Within five seconds, we knew that we were on, and our lonely dance began under that Texan night sky. There was no glory hole, but there was a gap to the side of the toilet partition. The guy squeezed his arm through and gave me a hand job. It had been a while, so let's just say it didn't take him long. Then I put my hand through the gap and did the same for him. We never said a word. Obviously. Once he had come, I opened the door and went to wash my hands. Etiquette thus required the other guy to wait in his cubicle until I had left. But he didn't. I heard his door lock click open behind me, but kept my head down as I rinsed my hands. Human nature being what it is, I couldn't help but glance in the mirror to check out his face. He was a young guy, and he was staring at me, his gob hanging open in shock. He was decked out in a Judas Priest t-shirt. <laughs> well, this is awkward. What am I supposed to say? As I walked out of the washroom, I winked at him. See you on the next tour! <laughs> uh, can you imagine how exciting that must have been for this guy getting a hand job from Rob Halford? Uh, yeah, or possibly confusing if you didn't pick up on That's true, the I guess. Content. That could have been a real, real eye-opener. If you're the guy that got a hand job from Rob Halford while wearing a Judas Priest shirt, reach out to us. I've got a lot of questions for you. No, that's one of those stories that no one would ever believe if you told them that, like, at that time. Oh, seriously, no, ne- never in a million years. <laughs> you might as well have said, nobody's going to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you to tell people. Um, he has some fun sketches of talking about Huron Aid. Uh, you, and, you and I, of course, love Huron Aid. 
Uh, he did not care so much about uh, any of the uh, heavy metal guys in Here at Aid. He says, I was most excited that Michael McKean and Harry Shearer, who played David St. Hubbins and Derek Smalls <laughs> and Spinal Tap, were there. Now, here was some proper fucking rock royalty. <laughs> like, wasn't Dio also there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dio? Nah. <laughs> so he said that a lot of the guys were kind of upset with those guys. Uh, because they felt like the you know Spinal Tap was making fun of them, and Judas Priest is like when we saw that movie, like we felt like they were there with us because we had so many of these moments, you know these stupid stupid moments where we felt like yeah this is exactly what we've experienced. Some so other bands did not like it. Judas Priest loved it. They it makes uh, them even more charming. Well, he's, he and he goes up to uh, Harry Shearer and Michael McCain, and they he says that they were in character the entire time. So Harry Shearer says. Um, hey man, you're Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, right? They said to me and Adrian Smith, you wouldn't be here if not for the tap. You owe us everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. I think that's so great. Um, <clears throat> uh, so they describe the, uh, the, the We Are The World uh, concerts as well. Uh, in which he says that Phil Collins was a dickhead for making a big show of doing the one in, at Wembley and then taking the Concord to Philadelphia to do it. It was like, what a fucking ego on that piece of shit. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that that was a big thing in the 80s, all these charity songs and concerts, and that just does not happen anymore? Uh, yeah, well, I think, honestly, Kanye ruined that. <laughs> Kanye and Billy Crystal. <laughs> Uh, one day we'll talk about the jazz man on this show at the uh, Hurricane Katrina benefit, I think, uh, but it'll take like three hours to get through it. Uh, Billy Crystal, do you mean Mike Myers? No, I. so this is a separate thing. So oh, okay. Kanye uh, did the thing with Mike Myers where, in which he said George Bush does not care about black people. It was the, the last time that Kanye was 100% correct about anything. <laughs> um, but it was also um, this thing I've been obsessed with for years uh, Billy Crystal did a performance as a character he apparently used to do in the 70s called The Jazz Man, in which he's essentially doing blackface without the blackface. It is horrendous. Uh, he does this entire monologue in which he's playing a jazz performer uh, who finds his home destroyed by the hurricane. And I, listener, reach out to me. I'll send it to you. You gotta, you gotta devote 30 minutes of your life to this thing. It'll change you. <laughs> like from a molecular level. Uh, that's neither here nor there, though. Uh, he says, <clears throat> uh, they went to a swanky after party at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia after the uh, We Are the World thing. And uh, he noticed that leaning on a wall next to uh, this area where people were fucking was a man in shades on his own. It was Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Uh, Jack had introduced a few acts at Live Aid and had been wandering around backstage all day, and I never had dared to approach him. But now that I had a few gallons of Dutch courage inside me, it was a different story. All right, Jack, I asked him. Hey, Rob, I saw what you did today. You were great. Fucking hell. Jack Nicholson knows my name. Hey, cheers. Great day, wasn't it? I got no further than that because at that point, the drunkest man in Philadelphia, and possibly the world, stumbled up to us. I had been drinking all day, and Jack had clearly had a few, but this prick was on another level. Jack Nicholson, man, he drawled, spraying us both with saliva and a trail of drool leaking from one corner of his mouth. The Shining, man, cuckoo's fucking ness, fucking awesome. The guy wouldn't shut up. I was getting rackled. 
Fuck off, pal. You're ruining my conversation with Jack Nicholson. But Jack was a model of courteous patience. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And after five minutes of slur and spit, the pisshead toppled off to the bar. You must get that all the time, I asked Jack. He sighed, raised his eyebrows to heaven, and said, Everywhere I fucking go. <laughs> so, you know, light a candle for Jack Nicholson there, I guess. Well, he is in his 80s now. Um, he describes uh, being back <clears throat> in uh, Phoenix on a day off, uh, getting drunk as fuck. And he goes out and gets in his uh, little red Corvette. Um, I didn't give a think, didn't didn't give a thought as to how much I'd had to drink. I'm not proud of that, but let's face it, I was not alone in that because it was the '80s. <laughs> uh, he gets pulled over and doesn't think anything of it, and the cops, uh, and he has like a loaded gun on him. He doesn't even think anything about that either. And the cops are like, "We need to breathalyze you." He's like, "Who cares?" He's like so so over it. They're like, "We're going to arrest you." He's like, "But but I'm Rob Halford." <laughs> That sounds like a, a reality show title. But I'm Rob Halford. Yeah. Uh, so he ends up getting uh, getting arrested, and uh, he he asks them to call his ex-manager of the band because he used to be a cop or something like that. And all the cops take pictures with him, everything like that. And for the most part, he gets away with it. He gets fined $500 and is banned from driving for 18 months. So not, not a big deal at all. Um... <clears throat> He, uh, he then meets uh, a guy who he shacks up with, and they he finally has a, a passionate, you know, sex life for the first time in his life. But with that, uh, his lover is also deeply addicted to drinking and eventually cocaine, which he shares with Rob. And, I mean, can you guess how that goes? Uh, they lived happily ever after, right? Ah, close to it. Uh, the, the relationship turns incredibly abusive both uh mentally and physically where he sketches out a scene where they're both like beating the fucking piss out of each other uh and they they just can't keep on this way uh rob's uh depression uh sinks deeper and deeper and at one point he uh swallows uh, a whole month's worth of sleeping pills on top of a bottle of jack daniels and he manages to let his lover know like what happened and the guy, you know, gets him to the hospital in time for his stomach to be pumped and for him to be revived. And from there, uh, Rob decides, all right, well, it's rehab time for me. Uh, the process of rehab for the first time works for him. Uh, he says here, you know, he had, he hadn't had a drink ever since or used a drug ever since. And, you know, it was actually fairly painless for him. Uh, unfortunately he gets out, he gets back together with his lover who, is still deeply, deeply addicted. It promised that he would also go to rehab, and it, it does not happen. Uh, and in the process, they have a big fight, and Rob leaves, and you know he has a bad feeling. Calls uh, the man's uncle to come check him out, and finds that it was too late. His lover had shot himself in the head. And this is, of course, just probably I think the lowest point in his life uh, by far. Which, I mean, after you finally find somebody that you want to be with, and it's just this awful uh, slugfest in between, ending with complete tragedy. I mean, can you imagine that? It seems like a lot of his early life is just one traumatic experience after another, 
particularly sur- surrounding sex. Yeah, so it's under it's understandable why he's had so many problems and has avoided a lot of life. So he <clears throat> he's doing really well with the band, but everything in his personal life is a complete shit show. It, and, but his sobriety at least takes, and he's able to try to get some new perspective, even if he doesn't necessarily have an outlet. <clears throat> now. Uh, while the band is recording there, they get an offer uh, to put a song from Turbo on the Top Gun soundtrack, but doing so would mean that they couldn't put it on Turbo, so they pass on it. And of course, Top Gun becomes Top Gun, and they're kicking themselves in the ass. So with the next record, they get an opportunity to contribute a song, uh, a cover of Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good, for the movie Johnny B. Good, with Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr., and Uma Thurman. Have you seen that one? I don't think so. Oh my god, it is an incredible piece of shit. Like, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, highly recommend you check it out, Jordan. <laughs> it, is it like Soul Man? It's it's almost as bad as Soul Man. Uh, it's about a uh, high school football player who's uh, getting offers of, like, money and drugs and sex from every college in, this, in like, the country, so he'll play for them. Uh, it's a deeply amoral movie. <laughs> So they miss out on one of the biggest action movies of the 80s and potentially all time for that. Correct. Uh, at another point, in, uh, just after releasing Turbo, Rob gets the idea, because he's enjoying a lot of the pop of the era, things like Kylie Minogue, Bananarama, etc., etc., to work with the songwriting and production team that worked with all of those bands. And the process he described, like, they wrote the songs, like, during lunch, and we recorded them in the afternoon, we ultimately decided not to release them, and we don't have access to the masters, but like, I, I would like to hear them one day. I would, too. I want to hear the pop songs that Judas Priest put out like in the mid-'80s. Had you heard anything about those? I had not heard about that. That sounds like a fun movie, like, I don't know, Hidden Treasure, trying to find the masters of this beloved heavy metal band's secret album of like pop music. Yeah, so if any listeners out there uh, want to find the stock Aitken Waterman Judas Priest collaborations, please let me know what you find. I would love to hear it. You know, those are just like in some dusty closet somewhere being undiscovered until one day some intern just cleans it out. I know. And like, hopefully, they decide to like look at what's on the label and put it on YouTube like, you know, you're supposed to do. <laughs> um,. Uh, the, the he describes the process of having to go to court, like uh, for those kids killing themselves while listening to uh, Stained Class, which of course is a, a complete joke. Uh, and he actually concludes here that they could have avoided it had CBS just handed over the master tapes earlier, so that like a team could actually review them. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he uh, says here. I grabbed a few di- days of downtime in Phoenix uh, before the Painkiller Tour was kicking off in Canada. I had one of my light mo- bulb moments there. Rollerblading was making a big comeback, so I headed to the nearest town and bought a pair. Soon I was rollerblading around the stage and singing as we got to the tour production and set list together. Hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if I rollerbladed during the shows, I suggested? you know. <laughs> yes, yes it would. <laughs> you know, all in leather? Most of my ideas get waved through, 
But on this one, the reaction from the rest of the band was unanimous. No, it would bloody not be a good idea for you to rollerblade on tour, Rob. <laughs> so that was that. I didn't rollerblade on tour. <laughs> what could have been? I know, right? Things could be so different. Just hot pink shorts and these neon colored rollerblades and maybe like those late 80s, early 90s funny shaped glasses. I, heavy metal would have changed that day if it happened. It, we could have had like a day glow metal future, and it's just not its not the case. We could have had like Barbie and Ken heavy metal. Maybe that's the, the thing that bands should be working on right now. Um, he describes the process here, another series of failed relationships with what are entirely straight or at the very least bi men, until he meets a young U.S. Marine from a personals ad in a gay newspaper. And it turns out, you know, there's a little bit of friction there, but he's been with this guy ever since, which is actually terribly sweet because this was like 35 years ago. He found his person. I know. So all throughout this time of being attracted to very masculine, obviously straight men, he found a very masculine, actually gay man, which is a huge breakthrough moment for him. Um... And he actually does some introspection here about why he had been pursuing mostly straight men the entire time and comes away with it like, as a gay man, I think I had felt inferior, like that a straight man was supposed to be like a better version of me, and that's why I was going after it. And of course, that had led him to nothing but heartbreak. It's actually a pretty good little section there in the book where he's thinking about all of this. Um, And this time, like, he decides he kind of needs a break from everything and he wants to do some solo music. Uh, and in the process, uh, it immediately sets Judas Priest on the defensive, the management on the defensive, uh, and through a series of miscommunications, he essentially is completely kicked out of the band. Uh, he, by signing the paperwork for the, uh, for getting a record deal for fight, essentially, it kicks off a whole fucking shitstorm that takes 10 years for him to resolve with the band. Um, I was mulling over a way to reconnect with the band when it came clear that any route back to the band had been completely cut off because Judas Priest had gotten himself a new singer. Horrified, I read all about him. His name was Tim Ripper Owens, and he had been singing in a Priest tribute, tribute band in Ohio, which meant he could do a pretty precise impersonation of me. He'd sent a tape to the band, they'd flown him over, and he was in. I don't blame him. He'd seen an opportunity and taken it. And let's face it, going from a tribute rock group to fronting the actual band must be the dictionary definition of a dream job. He says here, I have never listened to Jugulator and I never will. <laughs> I've heard him say that before and hey, why should he? Um, I, I agree with him. Uh, although I would be curious, wouldn't you? To like get his, we'll set Rob Halford up with a YouTube channel. And we'll have him listen to the album and he could do a reaction video for each song. That is literally the only reaction video I'd ever watch. He just listens, the song ends, and the video ends without him saying anything. Just has a look of disgust on his face. <laughs> Delete that. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the process, he actually spends a fair amount of time describing uh, his experiences with two. Now, folks out there that listen to our side projects episode, you'll be familiar with two. Do you, what do you, what do you remember that Jordan? Two. Whoa. That's how you spell it, right? Correct. Yes. Uh, 
Uh, he says, yeah, we had to, we were, he, we ponced it up by, you know, making it the number two W zero. <laughs> yeah. This was at the time, the late, the mid to late nineties where these classic heavy metal and even thrash bands all lost their minds and like tried to do other projects and recreate their popularity through like the newer sounds as things were getting a little bit heavier and a little bit more generic. They like threw on their leather dusters and tried to fit in with that crowd. And uh, as far as other stuff goes, like two wasn't that bad compared to what other fans did. But, you know, limited appeal, I suppose. I would take a a two over, say, Methods of Mayhem any day. Yes. (laughs) Get naked. Yes. Um, Shooting my jizzy jism, as it were. Uh, so he's describing the process with fight, like he's seeing smaller and smaller venues and he feels like he's working backwards from all the shit that he did in Judas Priest. And with two, it's even more desperate where like he's touring Europe during the world cup and like the opening band is the TV showing the fucking soccer matches. (laughs) There's a dozen people there. It's desperate. So he gets to do an interview with MTV to promote two essentially. And he's like, fuck it. This is the time. So he comes out to the world uh, in this uh, MTV interview to promote two, a, a thing that I think almost everybody has forgotten now, uh, but at the same time, it made the com- the persona complete for Rob Halford as we know him now, right? Yeah, I remember that interview. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. It was a big deal at the time, followed by people saying, well, yeah, obviously, even though to them it wasn't obvious. Yeah, he says here, I think... He says, I just opened my mouth and these words come out. I did not intend to do it. He says, I think that most people know that I've been a gay man all my life. Thump. The noise I heard behind me was a producer dropping her clipboard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hadn't intended to make this speech, but now I'm doing it, so let's go for it. He says, it's only been in recent times that it's been an issue I feel comfortable to address. An issue that has been with me ever since I recognized my own sexuality. Maybe this two side projects has pushed me. Maybe this has made me say, what the hell? It's time to step out and let people know what I'm about. Um, and he says to the interviewer, and I said to the interviewer, but didn't you know that already? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, he says, I was held back. I was allowed myself to be intimidated. A lot of homophobia still exists in the music world. I advise fans to go back through their Priest albums and find the clues to my sexuality littered throughout the lyrics, and I struck a defiant tone as I hoped me, my coming out would help other gay people in a society where they are still treated as second-class citizens. There are as many gay metal fans as there are gay fans of other types of music. We are everywhere. That's the way it is. Bloody hell, I had outed myself in front of uh, live TV, and this was it. I didn't have to hide anymore. At a stroke, it killed the innuendo and the people talking behind my back. Occasionally, I heard comments in clubs like, Oh, look, the fag is here. Well, now I had an answer. It's Mr. Fag to you. <laughs> really, uh, really pretty triumphant, I would say. Yeah, he is uh, literally coming out and being himself and discovering who he really is and being comfortable with it. And uh, in a lot of ways, forced a lot of music and heavy metal fans to acknowledge it and come to terms with it and accept it. Exactly. Um, so a, a lot of, sorry, not to cut you off. A lot of people will point to heavy metal parking lot, which was 
Oh, uh, just 20- a collection of like red ass morons who are homophobic as all hell. Right. It's 20 minutes of being in a parking lot before a Judas Priest concert with all of people saying, if you don't like Judas Priest, you're a slur. If yep. this, you don't like heavy metal, you're a slur. And, you know, him announcing this and coming out puts that all into more perspective, doesn't it? It really does. Uh, I mean, there is a reason why Rob Halford is so uh, such a, a domineering, iconic, uh, you know, musician, you know, 50 years into his career. Like, it could have been that was it, and we left the 80s behind, and, you know, Judas Priest, that was a cool band or whatever, but, like, his, you know, identity really does complete the entire picture, uh, and it makes a a, a whole complex human being uh, out out of all of this, it, and it, it makes a, a fascinating story, really. Um, and I mean, like... That's why I'm trying not to let the last 50 pages of this book kill it for me. When he says, I can't think of many things in my life that have been as important to me as Judas Priest's triumphant comeback after I return to the band, but meeting the Queen comes close. (laughs) Uh, He has a good, like, 30 pages about meeting the Queen, which I I didn't even bother to read, man. I'm going to be honest with you. Well, it's a high honor for someone like that going through the difficulties of his life, being an entertainer in a form of music that is not looked kindly upon by most of the world to be able to reach the highest possible level, actually going beyond the highest possible level that like any heavy metal musician has achieved and being acknowledged and appreciated for what you've done by your country's beloved leader of 80 years. I understand. Now, when we read K.K. Downing's book, I would say a good quarter of that one was devoted to his grievances with Judas Priest uh, not accepting him back into the band. Would you like to know how Rob Halford addresses that in his book? How many chapters does he dedicate to K.K. Downing? Uh, He has one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Ow. Does he talk a lot about his his bandmates just individually Um, or is it just kind of like the Rob Halford story and these guys are there? I mean, he mentions these guys a bit, but he doesn't really delve into their relationships uh, the way that, say, K.K. Downing did with his relationships with the other members of the band. And I really do believe it's because Halford spent so many of these early years with the band fairly isolated uh, he, you know, would hang out with the band. He would write music with them. He would drink with them for sure. But after drinking for a while, he was—he really was out like cruising for cock and mostly unsuccessful with it. Uh, and I think that like that further put him in a to like a deeper depression and further isolated him from some of the other members. So where, you know, somebody like KK is like thinking about like, well, where do I stand with this guy? And like, you know, I'm fighting with Glenn Tipton again. And, you know, I like this drummer or this drummer is I wonder where he went. Halford is not really giving it that much credence as he as the other guys are. Mm. I guess he has his own story to tell. He does. Uh, and it involves way less golf. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. Um, there's a number of really funny sketches in here I didn't even bother to get to, but like he meets Madonna once and she immediately like kind of tries to put his dick in her mouth. It's weird. <laughs> That does sound on brand for Madonna at that time. Yeah. Um, overall, I would, you know, if you find this at the used bookstore, this was well worth my $6, I would say. Uh, I would probably not pay the, let's see, 
$30 US or $38 Ooh. Canadian that's listed on the cover here. Too uh, much. But six, definitely. I was thinking like twenty four ninety nine, but thirty, man, right? That's that's too much. Yeah. Like unless you get like a download of it, the audiobook or or something, that's that's a bit much. Actually, now that I think about it, this this probably would have been improved with the audiobook version. I've never I've never I've never jumped into that though. Have you? Uh, audiobooks, no. Yeah. I think it's like a nice idea, but I feel like I just get real bored or like sleepy. Yeah. Because I know some people listen to books on tape at work. Or while driving, and I think for ones that have production value, like I don't know, a Game of Thrones, you'll hear like fighting and there's acting. But I feel if like someone's just like reading their autobiography, I would nod off while driving in the left lane. Yeah, I just got George Costanza's voice in my head. Um, so yeah, overall, um, interesting book. I think this is a very uh, great humanizing portrait into the life of Rob Halford as well. Um, other things I didn't mention in here as well that I think are, are, are worth noting. He does get arrested for cruising at one point. Uh, and essentially, like, all of the officers, once they get him to the station, realize who he is. This is before he had come out. And are like, maybe we'll just let this one go, man. Don't do it again. Hmm. And he describes, like, I got off so incredibly easy, whereas just six years later, George Michael had his yep. career fucking ruined. That's what I was thinking about. It was a very famous story. Yeah. Interesting how that happened. And it was the same deal as uh, as the George Michael thing, where it was complete entrapment by the cops. So, uh, he, he does have a very funny aside in this book in which he says, I have committed so many crimes in toilet stalls. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a new T-shirt slogan for us. Uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, what do you think? Anything else that you wanted to uh, discuss on this one? Um, no, it sounds like an interesting book. Far more interesting than some of the other ones you've talked about. Also, sounds like occasionally a tough read. So, I guess if anyone's yeah. thinking about it, fairly warned. I would put a trigger warning on a few of these things. There's a uh, uh, Rob himself, like doesn't come out great in some moments of it at one point he describes um hooking up with somebody and realizing maybe a little bit too late and maybe you should have stopped that point that they were uh, 16 and he was like oh no that's not great <laughs> mm. uh but i think overall uh from what i have been told anyway that a lot of things here are maybe not so uncommon and it would be I think it's useful to put it out in the world to, for him to say, this was my experience. And I hope that, you know, I hope other people find it useful as well. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, let us know uh, if you want us to do uh, future book episodes, what your suggestions are. Uh, we are in the current dead ass middle of the summer and nothing's going on. So we'll take your suggestions, man. Oh, good. Another festival is happening. Let's talk about it. Uh, movies, books, podcasts, you let us know. I'll take anything at this point. I am desperate. We do have a few things possible in the future, a few shows to watch, possibly YouTube-exclusive shows. Uh, very interesting. Anything in particular you want to name drop here? Uh, one thing that I'm looking forward to doing, and there's no set time for this, is... For a very brief time, professional wrestler, the Ultimate Warrior, 
had his own show where he tortured metalcore bands and making them do like burpees and push-ups while cursing and screaming at them at the top of his lungs. Yeah, that sounds like something we got to do. So look forward to that on a future episode. Uh, Other than that, uh, what do the people need to know? You can follow us on Facebook. You could follow us on Twitter at 365 Days of Horror, at Joe Thrash and Kelly. You can find us on Blue Sky now. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to do threads. I don't think that's going to be a thing that I'm interested in. I quit using Facebook already. I'm not about to jump back into that shit. Facebook and Instagram and this new thing, threads, that follows your every single move while forcing you to look at, like, cheese that's flirting with Starbucks. Yeah, I'm not. I'm already. I'm throwing it out there. I'm not going to get on that shit. You could also email us toiletofhell at gmail.com and toiletofhellradio at gmail.com. Oh, and patreon.com slash toiletofhell. Oh, yeah. Uh, most recent bonus episode uh, has us uh, going through all of those sleazy metal stories from the 80s. The most, uh, the upcoming one, I'm actually not sure what we got yet, but it will be good. I promise you that. Uh, and that's it. We'll see you next time. Bye.
You're listening to 66.6 FM. Radio TOVH. The Flush.